0: Hi everyone, welcome back. This is Terry, your host for the podcast, Digging Through Dominoes, where we dig through the dominoes of our past to help our future. Not only our future, but the futures of our children. It's in our power to change the game. So let's get to it. Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in, but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. Okay, so this weekend, I came across a really interesting video on YouTube. I can't insert it here, but I will put the link underneath in the show notes. Watch it. It is amazing. The title of it is Toddlers Regulate Their Behavior to Avoid Making Adults Angry, which I feel is the perfect beginning for this episode, which we're going to deal with the four, or that be four, attachment styles of parents. And children, as you know, our attachment try our our attachment styles affect our parenting. They affect our kids. They affect our relationships, our work, everything. They affect everything. And what is so sad is so many people just go through life they don't know what their attachment style is. They may know some things that happened in childhood, But they don't know what their attachment, why can I not say that? What their attachment style is, and therefore, don't know what to work on. Don't know when something needs to be changed. Don't know when they say something to their kid, it's their great-great-grandmother speaking. Because this is a generational thing. Unless you recognize it, you ain't gonna know what's going on. So, I thought what we'd do is start with the attachment styles first. Then I'm going to take you through a quiz and we're going to find out what my attachment style is. And I'm going to put the link in the bottom. You can do this online and you can go through and find out what yours is. For those of you listening on audio, I will be reading the questions and the multiple choice answers. And for those of you on video, you'll be able to see as I take the test from the screen recording. It's pretty interesting actually. And I fell exactly where I thought I would feel, or fell, feel fall, fell, fall. I thought I would fall exactly where I did. What is strange is, maybe it's not strange, maybe this is just weird for me because I'm just now figuring this out, is that I can see how my attachment child, why can I not say that? Why and how my attachment style has changed through the years because of relationships, situations, and uh, waking up to what the heck is going on. All right, first, I'm having trouble pronouncing these words. Forgive me. I'm afraid my father is going to come down and strike me with lightning for not being able to enunciate clearly secure attachment I think we all know what secure attachment is and I think relatively few of us have it it's available sensitive responsive and accepting in an ideal world that would be every parent's attachment style therefore their child would be healthy and happy and secure and doing great but that's not the case There's also what is called the anxious, insecure attachment style. In this attachment style, and I am reading from healthline.com right now. In this attachment style, the anxious, insecure attachment style, the child cannot rely on their parents to be there when needed. Because of this, the child fails to develop any feelings of security from the attachment figure. And since the child can't rely on their parents to be there if they feel threatened, they won't easily move away from the parents to explore. First, I was like, I I didn't read that right. But it does, because if you can't rely on someone to protect you, you're not going to be walking out in the wilderness to explore and have fun because no one's going to watch out for you. You've got to stay right close to that, that source that might protect you. The child with insecure attachment can become more demanding and clingy, hoping their exaggerated distress will force the parent to react. I can tell you for a fact, I can remember incidents of that happening in my childhood. In anxious, insecure attachment, the lack of predictability means the child eventually becomes needy angry and distrustful. All right, so let's move on to the next one, which is, and I'm still on healthline.com, the avoidant insecure attachment style. And I can, it's real funny looking through these, I can see myself and my siblings falling into different groups. And I guess I should put a disclaimer in here or a couple of disclaimers. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a person with a lot of trauma that I am working through. Also, that the next, the next disclaimer would be these attachment styles appear to also depend on birth order, according to some specialists. And I can see that. I mean, when we first had our first kids, I was with them all the time. By the time we adopted the last ones, I couldn't take care of the first ones because the last ones were causing so much trouble all the time, continually. And I can see there where that was a huge fail on our part. Okay, the avoidant insecure attachment. Sometimes when a parent has trouble accepting and responding sensitively to their child's needs instead of comforting the child, the parent in fact minimizes their feelings, rejects their demands, doesn't help with difficult tasks. This leads to avoidant insecure attachment. In addition, the child may be expected to help the parent with their own needs. I have seen that with one of my kids. Actually, I've seen that with a couple of my kids and it's very, very unfortunate. The child learns it's best to avoid bringing the parent into the picture. After all, the parent doesn't respond in a helpful manner. In an avoid- in avoidant insecure attachment, the child learns their best bet is to shut down their feelings and become self-reliant. It's also been shown that children with an avoidant insecure attachment won't turn to the parent when they're distressed and try to minimize showing negative emotions. And then we come to what is the disorganized, the disorganized insecure attachment. About 15% of babies with low psychosocial risks, and as many as 82% of those in high risk situation, develop disorganized insecure attachment according to 2004 research. This is where the parents show atypical behavior. They reject, they ridicule, and they frighten their children. Parents who display these behaviors often have a past that includes unresolved trauma. Tragically, when the child approaches the parent, they feel fear and increased anxiety instead of care and protection. The first three attachment styles are sometimes referred to as organized attachment. That's because the child learns how they have to behave and organizes their strategy accordingly. This fourth attachment style of the disorganized insecure attachment style is considered disorganized because the child's strategy is disorganized and so is the resulting behavior. Eventually, the child starts to develop behaviors that may make them feel somewhat safe. They may become aggressive toward the parent, refuse care from the parent, simply become super self-reliant. Do any of you recognize yourself in any of those situations? I do. I can see myself in several of them. And you don't, not everyone falls into one group specifically. I mean, a rigid boxed group. It can be fluid. Because after all, our childhoods were fluid. I did have the benefit of a fluid, caring, loving, attaching base when I was not with my parents. So I think that benefited me, benefited me. I think that benefited me in the long run. I guess what I first should have done was tell you how and who came up with these attachment styles. It was a psychoanalyst by the name of John Bowlby and he believed that mental health and behavioral problems could be attributed to early childhood. Does that surprise anyone? I'm getting my information for this piece from simplypsychology.org I will link that in the description box. Bowlby had this revolutionary idea and that was his theory of attachment. He felt that children come into the world pre-programmed, biologically pre-programmed to attach to other people because it would help them to survive. A baby has an innate need to attach to a person, to a caretaker. And in Bowlby's series, he's saying that one caretaker is more important than all of the other caretakers, generally the mother. He also suggests that there's a very critical age for this to take place and that is from birth to five years. And pretty much after that, you're on your own, kid. You got to figure this out yourself, in my opinion. Bowlby's maternal deprivation hypothesis suggests that continual disruption of the attachment between the infant and the mother could result in long-term cognitive, social, and emotional difficulties for the infant. According to that is kind of the working theory, the working model that a child gets for being able to make their cognitive framework in order to understand the world, themselves, and others. And it's all based on that primary caregiver. That primary caregiver relationship is really the base he felt I feel, I see it in my life for all future relationships, whether it's parent, child, child, parent, romantic relationships, work relationship, friendships, all relationships. It allows individuals to predict, predict, control, and manipulate actions with others. And we don't even know we're doing it. Most of us. I have a story for you, but that's going to have to be strictly on the podcast. It's not anything that I can, I can, uh, insert on YouTube. And while we're at it, let's take this for our sponsor pray, which is by me. I would like to ask you to take some time and subscribe to this channel. Also subscribe on one of your favorite podcasting platforms. Leave maybe like a five-star review. Or just five stars. Give me some encouragement. Let some people see your feedback. What do you think about this? How did this affect you? Did it affect you? Did it not affect you? Were you raised by wolves? You know, whatever. But I would love it if you could subscribe to one of the podcasts. Listen to the podcast or not listen to the podcast. Helping to subscribe to that would make a huge difference. Subscribing to this channel the Tattooed Biker Chick, as well as my channel, Digging Through Dominoes, giving it a like, a comment would make a huge difference and it would allow this to get out to other people that desperately need it. While we're on that topic about people that desperately need it, I have to tell you, I have been overwhelmed since this podcast first aired on May the 7th, I have been flooded with emails from you people that are listening. I feel your pain. I know what you're going through. And I hope in some way that I will be able to help you by sharing my story by saying, "Hey, I went through this. I know what it's like. It sucks. How I learned to get out of it, or I guess change the path a little bit. And go forward because there are days I can tell you, you don't want to take another step. You don't want to see another person and you don't want to take another step. So please, it would really help for those of you listening on either platform to please subscribe, like, comment, and share so we can reach those people that need it the most. Those that feel they're alone those that feel there's no other way, those that feel there's no way out. Okay, I'm going to go on through this article a little bit because it has some very interesting information in it. It Explains a lot for me and I hope it will explain a lot for you as well. Bowlby believed that that primary caretaker attachment is at the hierarchy. It is different from any other attachment. It is the one that primarily shapes who we become. Bowlby argues that the relationship with the mother is somehow different altogether than other relationships. In 1988, Bowlby suggested that that inability to form a close relationship or a dependable relationship on the mother can contribute desperately to failure to thrive. We see that in baby monkeys that have been taken from the parents. We see that in puppies, we see that in animals. Guess what? We see that in humans. Failure to thrive because the parent doesn't care. I have seen it in foster care. I've seen it where that child, maybe five years old, six years old. Well, let's, let's go with a little bit older let's go to 12 years old, but they really have the personality and the needs of a toddler because those needs were never met. Is it their fault? Eventually, yes. But we need to see where these things start, how they start, and how we can intervene. Bowlby felt that the breakdown of the maternal attachment could lead to serious negative consequences, possibly including affectional affectionless psychopathy i've seen that in foster kids that we've had it is scary and i think we've all seen it in the world if you have no one think about it if you have no one you can turn to why does it matter if you have no one to teach you values that you matter how are you going to how are you ever going to be able to gather empathy sympathy, compassion. You can't do it. You're on your own. You're an infant. Bowlby claimed that mothering is almost useless if delayed until after two and a half to three years and for most children, most children, if delayed for the first 12 months, it can result in serious consequences. Sometimes for the society at large, Bobby felt that the risk of not having that secure mother figure that is safe and secure and loving and protective and empathetic is important till, until the age of five. Firsthand, I can tell you children that we have adopted after the age of five or have come into our home after the age of five that did not have that primary caregiver, mother experience, have all, each and every one of them, have displayed serious dysfunction. Bowlby's maternal deprivation hypothesis suggests that continual disruption of the bond between mother and child could result in long-time cognitive, social, and emotional difficulties for the infant throughout its life. Bowlby believed that they are permanent and irreversible. That's a really scary thought. I think very much they can be permanent and irreversible. If in some vast in some way, there is not a connection made and you really look at what the heck happened and you can see while you're why? You are acting in a certain way and actively work to change it. Some of the things that Bowlby hypothesized would happen as a result of this lack of nurturing with the mother, the primary caretaker, would be delinquency, reduced intelligence, increased aggression, depression, lack of affection, and psychopathy. That's pretty scary. It's really, really scary. Oh wow, here is another video that I'm gonna have to watch in a minute and I'm going to include it. It Says it's a classic film showing the suffering of a little girl in a hospital separated from her mother. And it's a minute and 34 seconds long. Let me take a really quick look at this and then I'll be right back. And it's heartbreaking. And the backstory of it is... A little girl had to have a surgery and was in the hospital in 1952 for eight days. And I guess I didn't think, you know, back then. I'm assuming because of the way my dad was raised and my mother was raised, it didn't matter if a parent was there or not. The hospital was like germs, yuck, no touch the kids. Well, hello, that's what they need. It says this film classic made in 1952 drew attention to the plight of a young patient at a time when visiting by parents was severely restricted the girl was in the hospital for eight days and too young to understand the absence of her mother she wouldn't even have anything to do with the nurses at playtime which is just a weird thing to me to to hear that that's the way it used to be but she would have nothing to do with them she wanted her mom. Says this film study of typical emotional deterioration in an unaccompanied young patient and the subtle ways in which she shows or conceals deep feelings of distress remains as vivid and relevant as when it was made. Some scary stuff. And then I think I told you about the other video that I'm going to show you that I'm going to link. And I'll, I'll tell you about it. There's a, a little girl, they're doing some tests, and I assume, I don't know, didn't say, I'm assuming this toddler, maybe two years old, 18 months, two years old, is sitting in the mother's lap who's being very motionless. And there is another woman who's being very engaging and has a jar with some beads and some little toys, and she's putting them in, and she's being very gregarious with the child the child feels very comfortable and interacts with her and is really doing a great job and having fun. Well, then they bring in, I don't even know what to call this person, like the, the tester. I don't know. It was crazy. This woman with this aggressive attitude that sat in the chair with a book and the child noticed the, the person and then the very same nurse in the very same friendly voice, tried to engage with the child. When she did, the woman that had come into the room got very angry, very disgusted, very demanding. And the baby picked up on it and was looking at her and would have absolutely nothing to do with the woman with whom she had previously actively engaged. My gosh, And people are having, myself included, babies at 18, 19 years old, and they think they understand what's going on. That's really, really a scary situation. So, just to finish up in this this, um, article about John Bowlby, the bottom line with him was the way you parent your child is making their future, is sculpting. The future for your child. The way you interact with them as an infant has everything to do with the life ahead of them. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in family members' families. I've seen it in strangers' families. And it's it's really, it's a scary, it's a scary thing. Especially in a time when so many young people are so misguided and so filled with anger you have to ask yourself why is that what is the emotional root cause of that is it an organic mental illness or is it a fact of or a result of lack of nurture when that child or teenager was an infant now the way that attachment styles go on to affect your adult relationships Oh my gosh, this is part I'm going to continue and I'm going to put only on the podcast version because I don't think it belongs on YouTube. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to go through the relationships and how they affected me, what happened with me, all because of the lack of nurture from my mother and the lack of the presence of my father. Now, what I need to do again is make the disclaimer. I love my parents. I wish that they were still here with me. I realize, fortunately, my parents had traumas of their own. And having traumas of their own from that era, they had no idea how to parent. They tried their best. I can tell you 100% my father tried his best. Unless there's some things I don't know about. What I saw as a child is when my dad was around, I felt protected and I felt loved. I felt cared for. When my dad wasn't around, I didn't. If I was with my grandmother, my great-grandfather, my uncles, or my aunts, I felt loved and I felt cared for. When I was alone with my mother, I didn't. My relationship with my mother was not good at all until I moved half a continent away, and then it was very good. We spoke three or four times a day, but it was surface level. I think I said in a previous episode, I didn't even know the first date my parents went on until my mother had died, and my dad told me. I knew nothing of my mother's medical history. My mother just, she didn't speak. She was avoidant. She had a very avoidant personality. This comes from healthguide.org and it's talking about how understanding your attachment style shapes and influences your intimate relationships, how it can help you make sense of your own behavior, how to change your behavior, how you perceive your partner, and how you respond to intimacy on help guide.org, it says identifying these patterns can help you clarify what you need in a relationship and the best way to overcome problems. And in my experience, avoid relationships that are not good for you. Now this article goes more in depth on the attachment style and is suggesting much like Bowl be dead with that 12 month window that the nonverbal relationship between the caregiver and the child in those few months until the baby's—I mean—that's a very short period of time—is crucial in the development of a child. Crucial, and that that comes in nonverbal communication, lack of communication contemptuous acts and body language it says an infant communicates her feelings as we know by sending nonverbal communication such as crying cooing laughing smiling in return the caregiver reads and interprets these cues or is supposed to to satisfy the child's need for comfort food security, protection, and affection. When nonverbal communication is successful, we end up with a securely attached child. How secure attachment styles affect adult relationships. If you have a secure attachment style, you appreciate your own self-worth and you're able to be in an intimate relationship and you don't have problems expressing your feelings your beliefs, your innermost thoughts, your hopes, and your needs. You find satisfaction with others and you can openly seek friendships, support, and comfort. And you don't get overly anxious when you're separated from your partner. You are able to maintain your emotional balance and seek healthy ways to manage conflict And then he goes on to say, when faced with disappointment, setbacks, and misfortune in your relationship, as well as in other parts of your life, you are resilient enough to bounce back. Oh, how I wish I could have had that. And how I wish if you're watching this, you could have had that. All right. If you have an ambivalent or anxious, preoccupied attachment style. These are some of the things you can expect in relationships. You want to be in a relationship and crave feelings of closeness and intimacy with a significant other, but you struggle to feel you can trust or fully rely on your partner. Being in an intimate relationship tends to take over your life and you become overly fixated on the other person. I heard bells, did you? You may find it difficult to observe boundaries. Viewing space between you as a threat, something that can provoke panic or fear that your partner no longer wants you, just like your parent put you in the corner and left you. A lot of your sense of self-worth depends on how you feel you are being treated in the relationship and you tend to overreact to any perceived threats in the relationship. You feel anxious or jealous, went away from your partner and might use guilt, controlling behavior, or manipulative tactics to keep them close. You need constant reassurance from your partner. Others may criticize you for being too clingy or needy, and you may struggle to maintain close relationships. Now if we move on to let's see, I guess I should have preface preface that with ambivalent or anxious preoccupied attachment style. Are people with ambivalent a bit ambivalent attachment style also referred to anxious preoccupied, ambivalent, ambivalent ambivalent, anxious, or simply anxious attachment? tend to be be overly needy. As the label suggests, people with attachment style are often anxious and uncertain, lacking in self-esteem. They crave intimacy, but worry that others will not want them. It's unlikely your parent or primary caregiver was inconsistent in their parenting style. Sometimes engaged and responsive to your needs as an infant, and other times unavailable and distracted. This inconsistency may have left you feeling anxious and uncertain about whether your needs in your first relationship would be met, thereby providing a model for your behavior in later relationships. Also, an avoidant dismissive attachment style often stems from a parent who was unavailable or rejecting during your infancy. Since your needs were never regularly or predictably met by your caregiver, you were forced to distance yourself emotionally and try to self-soothe. This built a foundation of avoiding intimacy and craving independence later in life, even when that independence and lack of intimacy causes distress. Now, if we move on to the disorganized, disoriented attachment style, disorganized, disoriented attachment styles are also referred as, or referred to as fearful avoidant. They stem from intense fear, often as a result of early childhood trauma, neglect, or abuse. Adults with this type of insecure attachment tend to feel they don't deserve closeness in a relationship. If you have a disorganized attachment style, you've probably never learned or adequately learned how to self-soothe your emotions. So both your relationships and the world around you can feel frightening and unsafe. If you experienced abuse as a child, you may try to replicate that abuse as an adult. So these are some of the things that you can see in relationships of those with disorganized attachment styles. You probably find intimate relationships confusing and unsettling, often swinging between emotional extremes of love and hate for a partner. You may be intensive toward your partner, selfish, controlling, and untrusting, which can lead to explosive or even abusive behavior. And later, you can be just as hard on yourself as you are on others. You might display antisocial or negative behavior patterns, abuse alcohol or drugs, or be prone to aggression and or violence. Others may despair at your refusal to take responsibility for your actions. While you crave the security and safety of an intimate, genuine relationship, you also feel unworthy of love and terrified of being hurt again. Your childhood was probably shaped by abuse, neglect, and trauma. The primary caregiver of people that show this type of attachment style was most likely dealing with unresolved traumas of their own. It can lead to intense fear associated with a disorganized, disoriented attachment style. Often the parent acted as both a source of comfort and fear to you as an infant, triggering the confusion and disorientation you feel about relationships now. In other cases, your primary caregiver may have ignored or overlooked your needs as an infant, as a toddler, as a young child, or their erratic, chaotic behavior could have been frightening or traumatizing to you. So causes of insecure attachment, which it's such a scary place to be, is having a young or inexperienced mother that lacks the necessary parenting skills. Your caregiver experienced depression caused by isolation, lack of social support, or hormonal problems that forces them to withdraw from the caregiving role. I know for sure I did that later on as a parent. I know without a doubt. Your primary caregiver may have had an addiction to alcohol or drugs that reduced their ability to accurately interpret or respond to your physical and emotional needs. My dad was an alcoholic. He was a functioning alcoholic, but he was still an alcoholic, and that was scary. Traumatic experiences, such as serious illnesses or accidents, which interrupted the attachment process. We had that with Joshua because of his autism. They have a lot of times the inability to bond with their caregivers. Physical neglect is a big one. And that can be poor nutrition, insufficient exercise, playtime, or neglect of medical issues. I remember having to beg my mother to take me to the doctor, which was really sort of an oxymoron, I guess. I don't even know if that's the right word to fit right, right now, but um, because I was afraid of my doctor. But I guess I just expected that's what doctors did, because that's really the only doctor I had known that I remember. But my mother would not. It was an inconvenience to her if I got sick, I remember she was very inconvenienced when my daughter got sick one time on a vacation. That's just, you know, how she was. My mother was dealing with unresolved traumas of her own. And that makes me hurt for her. Emotional neglect or abuse, where your caregiver paid little attention to you as a child, made very little effort to understand your feelings, or they were real good at verbal abuse again that's my parents and again they were re- they were dealing with unresolved traumas of their own i do not hold them responsible i'm just i'm just glad i figured this out so then we have physical or sexual abuse we know that's happened with me with my doctor separation from your primary caregiver due to illness, death, divorce, or incar- in, incarceration. Um, my primary caregiver was my mother, but I was attached more to my grandmother, my aunt, my great-grandfather, and that part of the family. And I was very attached to my dad, but my dad was a pilot, and he was never home. Inconsistency in the prime primary caregiver? That would be is if you had a lot of nannies if you went to daycare, and examples like that. Frequent moves or placements. I saw this a lot in our foster kids and some of our adopted kids. Constantly changing environments due to spending your early years in orphanages or moving between foster homes. Now this article here, I'll, I'll link it. It's, help, it's helpguide.org. It has ways that you can help with these attachment styles, such as improve your nonverbal communication skills, and it goes on to explain that. Boost your emotional intelligence. Develop relationships with people who are securely attached. Good luck. Resolve any childhood trauma, which is what I'm trying to do here. I'll link this in the comments or in the show notes below so you can go through this more thoroughly. But I really would like to get to the, the test, the testing of this to find out your emotional or to find out your attachment style. Now you should be seeing my screen and we are on the attachmentproject.com, and we are going to do the attachment style test with me. I'll be the guinea pig here, and I'll also leave a link in the show notes below. Start quiz. I am... I guess these are just the statistics here. Okay, the first part of this quiz is early childhood mother caregiver number one. How do you perceive the following conditions were met by your mother or caregiver number one in early childhood? The following categories consider your early childhood experience from your early earliest childhood memories. Good luck. Material things gave me things I wanted to have, like toys, bicycles, certain clothes, computers, etc. Very rarely from what I remember with my mother. Attunement was emotio- emotionally in tune with how I was feeling, could read my emotions and respond in a way that made me feel like they understand how I felt. Very rarely with my mom. Encouragement. Encouraged exploration and discovery helped me find and express my natural interests and talents. Again, very rarely. Expressed delight. Took genuine interest in me and expressed delight in who I was. I I felt special and valued by them. Very rarely. Basic needs. Provided me with sufficient food, housing, and medical care when needed. Okay, on this one, I'm going to put a four. and The reason I'm going to put a four is I did have sufficient food and housing, but medical care was very difficult to get. Present where physically my mother was always there. She did not work before I was about 12 years old. Soothing and reassurance calm and soothed me effectively when I became distressed, upset, or overwhelmed. Very rarely. Now I feel like I'm ta- I'm you know dissing my mom here and I'm not. I'm being very objective here. Once again, I love my mother. I know she was dealing with her own traumas, but this is just what reality was for me. Protection. Kate kept me safe from danger and threats. I felt safe when I was with them. I never did feel safe when I was with my mother, but I can, I'm going to have to put a two here. I can remember two incidents that actually involved ants that my mother saved me from. Support for activities. Took me to activities like music lessons, sports teams, camp, etc., and or to visit friends. My mom did a pretty good job at that, and I... And my personal feelings, I kind of feel in one way she did it to get me out of the house. And another reason is that my grandmother was paying for a lot of these things. Early childhood father, caregiver number two. How do you perceive the following conditions were met by your father or caregiver two in early childhood? Support for activities. Took me to activities like music lessons, sports teams, camp. And to visit friends, my father did not do that. Soothing and reassurance, calm and soothed me effectively when I was distressed, upset, or overwhelmed. My dad, in my memory, did a really good job of that. Express delight. This one is really tricky for me. Uh, took general interest in me and expressed delight in who I was. Felt special and valued by them. Not really until I was an adult. As an early child, I would have to put that as a two or as a young child. Attunement was in, emotionally in tune with how I was feeling, could read my emotions and respond in a way that made me feel they understand how I felt. My dad, I'm going to have to give him a five, did pretty well on that too. Encouragement, encourage exploration and discovery, Helped me find and express my natural talents and interests. Dad helped me with that too. I mean, from shooting guns, playing guitar, making things, being with him in the garage, but he was not home much. He was only home a few days a month. Basing housing or basic needs, which is sufficient food, housing, medical care when needed very frequently. I remember my dad taking me to the emergency room. I remember him taking care of me when I was hurt, situations like that. Uh, present. He was physically around when I was growing up, very rarely. Material things gave me things I wanted to have, like toys, bicycles, certain clothes, and computers. This is really weird for me because I remember my dad, you know, he was gone a lot and he would bring me presents when he came home. And after my dad died, I felt really guilty because one of my brothers said, Didn't dad used to bring things to you when you were? you know, when he had been away on business and he came home. And that was the first time I think I realized he may not have brought things home to my brothers. But yeah, my dad very frequently would bring me things. He helped me and encouraged me to save up for a bicycle, things like that. Uh, Protection kept me safe from danger and threats. I felt safe when I was with him. I did feel safe when I was with my dad, except I was really frustrated when he got on to me about not getting the license plate of the guy that was trying to kidnap me. But I did feel safe with my dad. I remember at one time, uh, my uncle threw my brother into a swimming pool. My brother couldn't swim and my dad just jumped in there and saved my brother. That's kind of the way my dad was with us. Structure with a mother caregiver. Please answer the following questions with respect to your mother or family mother like figure. I prefer not to show this person how I feel deep down. Strongly agree. I often worry this person doesn't really care for me. Strongly agree. These are this is when I was a child, not as an adult. It helps to turn to this person in times of need. No. My mother my mother was not there. She was emotionally shut off from us or from me. I worry that this person won't take care of me as much or won't care for me as much as I care for him or her. Strongly agree. I talk things over with this person. Never. I cannot remember one conversation with my mother talking through things before I was an adult. And even then, as I said before, it was surface level. I usually discuss my problems and concerns with this person. No, never. I'm afraid this person may abandon me. I would have to say strongly agree on that. I find it easy to depend on this person. As a young child, I don't think I really knew any better. But looking back on it, I would have to say slightly disagree because I can't really remember everything. I don't feel comfortable opening up to this person. Strongly agree. Okay, this is the same quiz, but for the father caregiver. I worry this person won't care about me as much as I care about him. Disagree. I find it easy to depend on this person. I agree. Slightly, slightly agree. And that is just because he was never home. I don't feel comfortable opening up to this person. Agree. My dad didn't talk about a lot of things, actually, until after my mother died. I'm afraid this person may abandon me. Yes, my, my dad abandoned me continually through my childhood. I often worry that this person doesn't really care for me. I have to disagree with that. I felt loved by my dad. I talk things over with this person. Strongly disagree. In, it helps to turn to this person in times of need. As a child... Slightly. I usually discuss my problems and concerns with this person, with this person. Disagree. I prefer not to show this person how I feel deep down. This is really another hard one because my dad was the one that I felt I could show how much I was hurting, but for some reason he, you know, he was either never there or it got shut off and I'm going to have to go neutral mixed on that one. Okay, this should be fun. Romantic structure, romantic partner number one. It helps to turn to this person in times of need. Slightly disagree with that. I often wor- worry this person doesn't really care for me. I agree with that. I usually discuss my problems and concerns with this problem with this person. Strongly disagree. I find it easy to depend on this person. Now this is tough. If we're talking physically, I agree. If we're talking emotionally, I strongly disagree. I prefer not to show this person how I feel deep down. I strongly agree with that. I talk things over with this person. Disagree. That does not happen. I worry that this person won't care about me as much as I care about him or her. I'm neutral on that. I'm afraid this person may abandon me. Strongly agree. I, although right now I'm, I'm more neutral because I know after the divorce, I can take care of myself. I don't feel comfortable in opening up to this person. Strongly agree. Next, ah, general attachment style. I thought it was going to be the end. I don't feel comfortable in opening up to others. You know, sometimes they can open up to other people if they're not in my circle. So I'm going to put slightly agree with that. It helps to turn to people in times of need. Disagree. I know people say that they're there and I know that they're there and I know that they're genuine, but for me, it's very difficult to do. I usually discuss my problems and concerns with other. Surface level. I'm afraid that other people may abandon me. Strongly agree. Where is that? I often wonder that other people do not really care for me. Strongly agree. I prefer not to show others how I feel deep down. Strongly agree. I talk things over with people. I'm going to have to put neutral mix because sometimes I will, but I, I really, I don't delve deeply. I find it easy to depend on others. I disagree. I really don't depend on many people. I don't trust many people. As I said, um, Lessons over many years and touching the hot stove too many times have ta- has taught me better with that. I do not depend on other people. Oh, great. Lookie there. I guess I could put my name and email in there and get the report sent straight to me. But my attachment style comes up as disorganized, fearful, and avoidant. Okay, so now we know the truth. My attachment style is disorganized, fearful, avoidant. So right here, I am on my notes and let me see, where is, in my notes, okay, there it is, disorganized, fearful, avoidant, I need a label, the disorganized type tends to show unstable and ambiguous behaviors in their social bonds, so very true. For adults with this style of attachment, the partner and the relationship themselves are also, are often the source of both desire and fear. So overwhelmingly true. I can feel a panic attack coming on just thinking of that. And that's a literal panic attack, not like, (laughs) that's not figuratively. Fearful avoidant people do want intimacy and closeness, but at the same time experience troubles trusting and depending on others. As I've said so many times, I don't trust anyone. I shouldn't say I don't trust anyone. There are some people that I do trust. Very, very, very few. Uh, Once again, I've got to say, along with my childhood and 60% 60 years or I guess 58 years because this all started coming together for me about about two years ago I'm 60 now has taught me you don't tell other people secrets you cannot have a close friend you cannot divulge anything to anyone nothing too deep that is because you're going to be betrayed you're going to be hurt and you know I don't know if that's because of what I've experienced in the last, since adulthood or if that, that has to be my attachment style as well as a child, because that was, that was the very same thing. All right, they do not regulate their emotions well and avoid strong emotional attachment due to their fear of getting hurt. 100%. There were people I was very, very, very attached to, but each and every one of them has proven to be unsafe for me. So, right now, I think I'm, you know, I had like a um, cliche or a term for that, but I can't think of what, what it is now, which totally is so me. You know, I feel alone in this world. I would not mind at all living alone in a beach town and doing really not much of anything. All right, then it goes on to talk about... And there will be links. And like I said, I'm going to link I'll link this. Yeah, so they do not regulate their emotions well and avoid strong emotional attachment due to their fear of getting hurt. That is so 100% me. You know, I can remember one time with my dad. We didn't touch my dad. Uh, he was uncomfortable with it. And I remember after my mother died, I went to hug my dad at the airport. And I thought he was going to break his back trying to get away from me. And I realized a few days after my mom died, my dad actually told me that wasn't what it was. He didn't know how to show it and he didn't realize how important it was to have someone hug you and love you and be there for you until my mother had died. So there we go, everyone, for episode eight of Digging Through Dominoes. I want to thank you for being here once again please consider subscribing to this channel or the Digging Through Dominoes would be like even better or both. Liking the content, leaving a comment, sharing it. So this gets out further and I would really like it if you guys could follow me on a podcast platform and leave a great review Apple podcast, I think is one pod and, um, I'm on every major podcasting platform, so I would love it. Thank you so much for right now. I'm going to say goodbye to everyone on air. I'm going to continue this discussion off air with some more personal details. If you want those, jump on over to one of the podcasts and it'll be there. I will talk to you soon. Oh, so it looks like I have myself committed here. You know, this is not anything I can really put on YouTube because I know a lot of people on YouTube are not going to... A lot of them know me. They know me personally. They're not going to come and check out a podcast. So I feel more safe. But I wanted to let you know how this attachment style really has affected me through my entire life. When I was in high school, I never had a date. Um... I think I had a couple and I was date raped. I told you about what happened on that and the death of my son, Noah. After that, when I was on my own, a friend of mine and I decided to to get out and get an apartment. And we did that. And I was always seeking something, but I was always afraid. I knew inside I was never good enough. I just knew it. I was never, never good enough. And I also knew from a very young age that I wouldn't be able to take care of myself. That's what I was told. That was what I was modeled. That was what was inferred to me. You are not worth taking care of. And I took that as I can't take care of myself. I get into a relationship, I was 18 years old with someone that was 28 years old, and I displayed so many of these characteristics, very clingy, very worried, I didn't feel like I was worth anything, that didn't last very long, and that really threw me into a tailspin. And one thing that really happened, the more times I was rejected, the more times I came very close to suicide. And that's really, it's not easy to say, it's not easy to feel about myself, but it is the truth about what happened. So after that situation ended, I i met my oldest daughter's birth father at a Willie Nelson concert. I knew I couldn't go back home. My parents had told me that I was not welcome to come back home they were just trying to get kids out of the house as fast as they could. So I ended up with this guy who is the stereotypical abuser. We, we got married. Within a week of getting married, we were in Las Vegas from Texas. Took off from Texas, went to Las Vegas. He had two young children. In Vegas, I was severely, severely beaten to the point that the, the dealers at the blackjack tables and the poker tables, I don't know if they had poker then, but mainly blackjack, roulette wheels, they would see me come in and out of Bally's. And they saw when I went to the hospital. Some of them stopped me and said, you know, you should not be in this situation. You need to come. You should come with us. At that point, I didn't trust them. I'm thinking, Vegas, what are you going to do? Sell me into sex trade? What's, you know, what's happening? So I, I didn't take them up on that. And we ended up being in Reno, settling in Reno. Well, he would send me out several times a week. And actually, he tried to pimp me out. It did not work. I would get dressed. I would go to some of the bars. I would sit there. At that time, my hair was brown, it was long, Um, you know, I'm six feet tall, men would come up to me continually, and I would just avoid them, and I would drink, knowing that when I got back, I was going to be beaten. We went to a dinner with his work associates, and they noticed that I had a huge mark it was like a goose egg actually on my forehead and I was having trouble walking. I had gone, I had been pushed down the stairs, I had been kicked in the head with a boot. Now this is where a lot of my, I have severe complex PTSD. He had choked me telling me he was going to kill me. He had held pillows over my face trying to smother me. i had had a gun to my head. I, I, everything was such, such a blur. Truthfully, I stayed high most of the time. I, I smoked pot. I couldn't take it. I just, I just couldn't take it. And then I found out I was pregnant. That's when things changed. Actually, let me back up there. One of the incidents, I think when I had been thrown down the stairs. (laughs) I don't know which time it was. I ended up in the hospital and a social worker came in. A nurse came in and looked at me. They knew exactly what was going on. And the social worker came in and said, you know, what's happening? And I'm looking at her and I'm looking at him. He's in the room and they're talking to me and I'm thinking, I cannot believe that you are talking to me with him in the room. There's no way I can tell you anything. And I just denied everything that they were saying to me but my eyes were saying get me out of this I didn't know what to do I knew I couldn't go home I knew I couldn't take care of myself I had no idea what to do then I mean we I think we got married in uh, June I left him in September of 1981 and the reason I left him is pretty embarrassing but I think it's admirable at the same time It's embarrassing because I didn't care enough about myself. But I think it's admirable because I care enough about my baby not to have her in that situation. So I called my parents. I said, I'm pregnant. This is what's happened. I sent them the hospital reports. And I flew out. My dad picked me up and didn't speak to me on the way home. I got there. My mother wouldn't speak to me. I was not allowed to sleep in a bedroom. I had to sleep in the living room on my mother's couch. She wouldn't let me have one of the bedrooms. Even though there were, I think there was one empty bedroom at the time. Yeah, there was one because my youngest brother was there. So I had my daughter. And that was just a wonderful time. She was like the greatest gift I had ever had. And it was I remember sitting up with her in the middle of the night, thinking, "This isn't work. I love this. I absolutely love this. I love washing her clothes. I love taking care of her. I love playing with her. I love taking pictures of her she was she was my everything. Then I started college and things kind of got a little hairy scary. I felt really bad because my mother pretty much demanded some things of me which she should have but at the same time here I had this little girl that I did not want in daycare and I kept her out of daycare as much as possible and let me let me flash forward a little bit then let's see then I met my son my oldest son's father very nice man now here's my problem with relationships I didn't get to know people well enough I didn't go beyond surface level. He didn't go beyond surface level. He came from a very disorganized family. From what he's told me, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's not. He would tell me things that if he had acted up, he would be put in the car and they would start to drive to the the orphanage. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. That's what he told me. He was kind of like a hippie, peaceful artist, chef guy, um, very laid back, very to himself. He was very withdrawn. He was not really open to emotional relationships, and neither was I. So that pretty much fell apart. We moved to South Texas, and that pretty much came apart. I was alone all the time with two little kids he was at work all the time. There was no way that that was going to work. We divorced. And this is when enters someone I met at in a South Texas on the beach open air bar. I didn't know who it was. I saw this person across the the beach from me and a waiter came over and with a note and said meet me up at so and so and so I did and I started dating this this gentleman didn't know what he did for a living how smart of me was that didn't know what he did for a living he was very charismatic he was very handsome he was very powerful he was very um, I guess in a word if you were just going to go on physical traits and charm he was very my type Dark, dark eyes, like I said, very powerful. Didn't know what he did at the time. We started going out and I found out that he was had been an attorney. He had gone to school in, in Austin and he was then the director of state for a state in Mexico. I went out with him for a while and I did. I liked the attention. That's I, I got attention. I was your stereotypical blonde American trophy that all of the Mexican politicians had at that time. And I think one of the smart things that happened, I didn't realize he was married at that time. And I remember thinking about this. Do I want to spend every holiday alone? Do I want to spend every birthday alone? Do I want to be the one that only goes to certain events while his wife is going to national events, federal events, state events, things like of that nature. And it wasn't really a jealousy thing. It was, do I want to be in, in the position of being a mistress for the rest of my life? That was in the process of being set up. I would have been taken care of. And I just, I found out some information that, you know, I kept wondering how I made the money he made. And I found out there were cartels involved. He was actively protecting some of the cartel leaders. I left that situation and I went back to my parents' house. Well, we're going to come back to that in a minute because being in a situation like that with someone that was very high up, ended up being very high up in the federal government, that also had a connection with cartels, was not safe for me in any way at any time. So we're going to come back to that in just a second, but I ended up back at my parents' house and I really had no boundaries. When we were growing up, we had no boundaries. We had really, we knew we were in trouble when we got hit. So I just, I needed someone. I wanted someone to want me. I wanted to be friends. I wanted a relationship and I was in, I was working one day and this girl from high school came in and she ended up working right next to me. And she and I started a relationship. So she and I were in a relationship for a while. And then I met my kid's father. Once again, I acted on emotion. I left her Because I knew in Texas at that time, that was nothing that would be accepted. You would not be able to, I would not be able to stay with her. My parents would disown me. I would be thrown out. I would be completely um, ostracized from everyone in my family. And so I left and I started seeing the father of my children. And it was a bad situation from the very beginning. Anyone with half a brain on his side or my side would have run. I do remember trying to check him out before we got together before that first date to see if I thought he was stable or not. He owned his own business. He owned a nice car. Uh, He asked me to go out and I said, well, you know, why don't you meet me at this wherever? Because I still wasn't trusting anything. So we met. Had a great first date and it was, I think we had sort of a connection because we both felt very lost. He had filed for divorce four days before he met me. He had been in a cult, in a religious cult, which had a great influence on our marriage. He had three boys I that were I was closer in age two than I was to him. He was closer to the age of my mother. I didn't know how to handle teenagers. He didn't know how to handle this wild young girl that craved stability. And it was just a big cluster. It was such a mess. The boys didn't know how to handle me. I didn't know how to handle the boys. I was jealous of the boys. The boys were jealous of me. Their dad was in the middle. He felt bad for leaving them, and so he was kind of overindulging them on things. There were a lot of times when I was being left out of situations because of the boys, which only caused more resentment, and then there was resentment between my kids and his kids. Any therapist at that time would have told us both, run. This girl needs stability, and you are not it you just got out of divorce and you need to take care of your kids and you need to get your head right. The cult that he was in was pretty, um, it was pretty scary. It was a pretty, pretty scary situation from what I understand. And I think that greatly affected his kids as well. I mean, how could it not? So we had a perfect six months. Perfect. It was like, oh my gosh, how could anything be so so wonderful with so much bliss and then things got to be pretty bad he avoided going to my parents house we always had to go over to his brother's house and sister-in-law and I loved them they were wonderful but it was every weekend and I wanted being a newly married woman family I wanted to kind of grow our own family so that was a real source of tension there And one thing that happened is that we had made a a pretty much a vow with each other that if anything happened, if we had problems, if we had marriage problems or whatever, we would not go to family. We would go to a, a marriage counselor. We would get outside advice, but we would not go to family because family will get over what you did, but they will not get over what your spouse did. About six months into our marriage, he went to his brother it destroyed the relationship i had with his brother for it's never it's never gotten back to where it was and i really regret that i i really enjoy his brother and his sister-in-law i loved his mom his sister i just really liked her but it destroyed it it destroyed that relationship and i was very very angry so that that was <laughs> That was horrible. We ended up moving to the Northwest in 1990 and adopting a baby, which was one of the the greatest blessings in both of our lives. We adopted our first baby and then we adopted Joshua. I think many of you, if you've listened to my, my YouTube channel about my son Joshua and his mental illnesses and his death last October 2021, It was hard. It was really hard with Joshua. But that was the only time he didn't work for himself. He worked for a home builder. We were dirt poor. We had nothing like we have today. We were completely dirt poor. I mean, we were like digging through the couch, poor, looking for change. That was the happiest I think I've ever been. He wasn't catering to clients, he wasn't catering to other people. We were being a family, and it was amazing. Then that was in Washington. Then we ended up moving to, to Oregon. And I'm fast forwarding a, a couple of years here, several years here. I remember I was out in the backyard watering my grass and I got this phone call, this really weird phone call. It was like one of the first cell phones that I had had. And the number was strange and I was like, what the heck? I answered it and it was from someone in, Mex- in the Mexican um, situation. I, w- I started getting phone calls regularly. That was in 1997-ish. I started getting phone calls. They had tracked me down. And I was being warned. I was being warned that I didn't know anything. I was being warned not to speak. I mean, it, 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 I was being threatened, basically. So this went on, that was like 1997. And then in 2 see, we had 9-11 was in 2001. 2002, I got a phone call. And it wasn't a will you, it was you will meet me. I was petrified. My family's life was on the line. My life was on the line. I was told my family's life was on the line. So I went down to Southern California, to Beverly Hills, and I met him. And we talked about things. He wanted to know what I still knew. He was being very charismatic. He was asking me a lot of questions, almost as if he wanted to take me back to Mexico, which was absolutely not, not an option. But he was asking me a lot of questions having a lot of conversations in Spanish, which I understood a lot of, but some of it I didn't understand. I had lost a lot of my fluency in Spanish by that time. And then some men came in to the hotel room. It was gorgeous, gorgeous hotel room. We stayed at the Peninsula Hotel in, in uh, Beverly Hills, and I was pretty severely taken care of to make sure that I wouldn't speak. And I can say that now because my identity has been changed. He has no idea who I am, my name, my social security number, my birth date, anything. It's all been taken care of. I remember coming home with a lot of bruises, a lot of bruises. And my husband is asking me questions. And on the way home, I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to hide this? As soon as I got to the airport, he was going to see that I was bruised. And he was asking me how these things happened. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say? I can't tell him. First of all, it was embarrassed. I oh, I, I'm involved. W- I was involved with a guy that is now with the federal government in Mexico that was charged with protecting a major cartel. I, I, I couldn't tell my husband that. He called me. He's threatening to kill you and my kids, and I wasn't thinking correctly. So I I just. You know, I got drunk, I drank too much wine, I fell, blah, blah, blah. He didn't believe me. I mean, how could he believe me? The story I told him was so absolutely ludicrous. And then things, I was still getting notes. I was still getting emails, phone calls. And then one day they stopped. Um, they stopped because he had to go into hiding. And there's more about that maybe on another situation. I don't even know if I want to talk about it or not. Because it is a very real, a very scary situation. So things in our marriage, when we moved to Oregon, we were foster parents. We had three kids that we had adopted, or two kids we adopted, and another one that was a foster child we were getting ready to adopt. And then we had my my two oldest kids so we had five kids we moved to oregon we were going to build a house and the girl that we that was the foster child her adoption had not been finished yet so we had to be registered as foster parents in the state of oregon we move into our home and it was hard it was hard work the foster kids kept coming because we were technically foster parents and so we were registered with the state as foster parents, and they would call us for emergency placements. Well, I was told when they got here that they wouldn't be leaving because it was inconceivable inconceivable that these kids could go to another home. But I was breaking. I was coming apart by that time. I knew I couldn't handle it. I had Joshua, whose illnesses were coming more and more prevalent. I was having a difficult difficult time. I could see the toll that it was taking on my older kids, but that was not taking in, into account. So then we get into 2006, 2007. Well, there were a lot of traumas that went on um, that I think I talked about in another episode. And we get into 2006, my mom was killed. We get in 2007, my dad was killed. We get into 2008, and I was running. I was in the running I was fleeing. I, I couldn't take being in the house, in the family any longer. I didn't know what it was. I knew it wasn't my husband. I knew it wasn't my kids. I knew I was smothering. I knew I was breaking and I ran. And when I was in Texas, I ran into an old boyfriend and that started something up And that kind of went until he suggested things get serious. And for me, it was a distraction. It was never sex. It was never sexual. It was never romanticized. It was a distraction from what I was feeling. It was a distraction from wanting to kill myself. When he started getting serious, saying that we would move to Monte Carlo and all of this stuff, I was like, I'm out of here. I'm not doing it. I'm gone. So I continued to self-disintegrate. I went through the... Behavioral Center came out of that with really stupid therapy that didn't help me at all until I found my, my current therapist. And that was really the, the, those were the darkest days of my life coming out of that, which led into a divorce. I left in 2013, um, led into a divorce, some more relationships, and none of them I thought that they were real, but they weren't. Well, I I can't say that. They were all distractions. But if one decided to leave, if I decided to leave, I was okay. But if another one decided to leave me, it triggered that abandonment thing in me that I had had since I was a child. And I understand that now. And I wanted to die. I didn't understand it at the time, but I understand it now. And it makes perfect sense to me now. So that went on until 2017. I ended well, before that, I got a, into another situation that was really a blessing in disguise with someone that was um, impotent, both mentally and physically. And so that left me alone to really analyze and look and figure my life out. And that's when things started to turn around for me. Pretty much, I thought so. Things. Things went on. My husband and I got back together, lost a lot of kids in the process. We get back together. And then I, I ran into this next relationship with which is going to have to be a separate episode or series of episodes because it is so absolutely insane. We had gone Jeff and I had gone out for dinner one night to hear a friend of mine that was a blues singer. She was One of the main um, women that brought blues to Portland in the 80s, we went out to dinner and saw her and our friendship rekindled. And through a series of events, our relationship intensified. And it's just crazy. I mean, it's like Black Widow. Crazy, the stuff that went on. I'm, I'm still suffering a lot of the problems that happened, uh, uh, the problems that were created physical problems for me. It was just, it was crazy. She just recently passed away and I was really, I was really hurt. I was, I, I wasn't ready for the flood of emotions I felt because I knew the bad side, even though a lot of things that happened to prevent me from really knowing the bad side But I knew the good side and I knew the healing that she had given me in areas that my mother could not fill. She filled them. And if you look up the the words to the Etta James song, Tell Mama, that's what she gave me. She gave me the things my mother never gave me. So in a way, I think she was almost a mother figure for me. But we'll have to go into that at another time because... I tell you, that is long, it is drawn out, it is crazy, and it is unbelievable. It could almost be on the Art Bell show. (laughs) I've got to tell you. So with that, I am going to say thank you so much. Please remember to subscribe. Give us a great rating, review, share with your friends, and we will see you next Tuesday, 5 a.m. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at DiggingThroughDominoes.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.